Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Joe Coy about mixed plate. First, wanted to remind you that if you like this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on that book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. At Books on Pod. This Big Frida the Queen Diva, the author of Big Frida, God Save the Queen Diva. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellen. Girl down, you already know. Hello, readers. Joe Coy is a wildly popular stand-up comedian and the author of Mixed Plate, Chronicle of an All-American Combo. Joy, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm good, man. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed reading this book over the last week or so. And although most people are going to identify you, obviously, as a stand-up comedian first and foremost, this book strikes a very different tone. And that's not to say there aren't funny parts in this book, but you really pour your heart out in a very different way and expose yourself in a manner that people may not be accustomed to. Was that difficult for you, even as somebody who is used to sharing so much with his life to do so under uh, such a different tone versus the stand-up world? Yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of crazy. It was very emotional too. I didn't realize just how emotional it was until I did the audio version of the Mm. book and have to read it out loud and hear my story out loud to myself. It, <laughs> it, it got very emotional at times where it was therapeutic, if that makes sense. So there's topics that I talked about that I wish I could have done on stage, but I just knew there was no way I could make it funny. Like stories about my brother, you know, that had to be in a book. And I had to tell that story because it lets you know exactly where I've come from, you know? And what I had to go through. So, yeah, that was tough to be able to write in that manner. You know what I mean? Where it's not funny. I'm just trying to tell you my story. The part where I got the most choked up involved your brother and also your dad. And we'll get into him a little bit more in just a few minutes, though. Just to give people some background, your mom was originally from the Philippines and met your dad, this all-American-looking guy from Buffalo, New York, when he was serving in Vietnam for the U.S. Air Force. They actually married a year after meeting in 1970, I believe, and had you a year later. What was your mom like as a parent growing up? She was fun. You know what I mean? My mom is an entertainer, and she loves to entertain, whether it's just an MC at the party or just joking around with friends, man. That's where I got it from. I got that from her, and she was a lot of fun. So she wore her heart on her sleeve, and, and you saw it. And, you know, especially after the divorce, I saw my mom have to be funny during a tough time, you know, so that was hard to see. And us just going through what we had to go through, you know, with my sisters and my mom and just the relationships. It was just crazy. When you alluded to your brother, Robert, a little bit, your relationship with your brother, Robert, is obviously very complex. And it was a uh, heroic worship up to a certain point. And then something happened that changed all of that. What exactly happened that caused this shift inside your brother Robert's head? Well, Robert, you know, is, uh, unfortunately he's dealing with his mental health and, you know, for years, I'm so happy that we are where we are now, where people are open about it for years. It was like, wasn't that I was embarrassed. I just wasn't prepared for the conversation. You know what I mean? Like that's a lot to talk about and it's very heavy. And now people are accepting mental health. There's people that identify 
with themselves needing therapy as well. So like now it's more like it's a normalized thing where it's okay to say, I need therapy. I need to speak to someone. I need to talk to someone. Whereas when I was coming up, you know, you didn't say that. Everyone always was in denial. I don't need therapy or having somebody that needed help. You didn't want to talk about that. You kind of just kept that in the home, you know, and that's private. You don't need to know about that. But there was a time where my brother, uh, there was drugs and then Next thing you know, it's affected the rest of his life where he needs medical attention all the time. So those stories were the hardest ones to tell in the book. How was your relationship with your dad as a kid? You know, my dad, you know, it sucks. It sucks that I have to do this because I don't like everyone always asks me, why don't you talk about your dad and your standup? And it's like, I really don't have that much to talk about. You know what I mean? My mom and dad divorced at a very, very young age. I was like 11 or 10 when they divorced. And before that, all we had were problems with my brother. You know what I mean? All we had were the cops at the house every day. And you read the book. I, it's hard to get into it, but you know, just the stuff that was happening was not good. So those are my only memories of my father. I love my dad. Don't get me wrong. He's in my life. I love him, but I don't really have any stories about growing up with my dad. I don't. And that sucks, but I'm glad he came back into my life after high school. And as I started doing stand-up, he was a big part of it. And that's where our relationship started over again. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he was one of the first people to really encourage you to pursue that dream, that stand-up dream that you had literally had going back to watching Richard Pryor tapes as a sixth grader, correct? Yeah, Eddie Murphy was the tape watching uh, Delirious and listening to Richard Pryor on uh, audio was sixth grade seventh grade that changed my life the minute i heard those two things i was like oh, okay yeah i have to do that for the rest of my life this is what i'm born to do and uh my mom was always into the kids performing at these little talent shows or get togethers it wasn't until i graduated high school that my mom was like okay talent shows are over now you have to worry about real life you know what i mean talent doesn't pay the bills she's just being a mom you know what i mean whereas my dad was like hey do it. He was like, I wanted to be a pilot. And look at me to this day. I still wish I was a pilot. And I don't want you to be like that, Joe. I don't want you to be like, I want to be a comic. And then 70 years later, you're like, I wish I was a comic. Don't do what I did. Do it right now. And he supported me. I remember he maxed out his credit card for me to help me build a website. It was crazy, man. Just seeing how much he loved the fact that I was pursuing my dream and it was literally like he was living vicariously through me. I loved it. My first headshot was with my dad. It was so funny. <laughs> your first headshot was with your dad. What was he at with no, he you took at Glam? It. He, he took oh, I it. see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, did he go to Glamour shots with you and pay for the, yeah, uh, yeah, the headshots yeah. or something? Okay. Yeah, he was standing right next to me. <laughs> so you mentioned the talent shows. You uh, you got by on talent shows on a couple of skills as a kid. One was that you were naturally that funny, but two, you were apparently a world class moonwalker what's the key to a good moonwalk <laughs> yeah, i'm just i had michael jackson down to a t man i could do the whole routine with my eyes closed i didn't even need the damn song playing in the background <laughs> i could do it in my head so uh yeah that was my go-to i didn't have the outfit i didn't have the black shiny cardigan with the white shirt and the black tuxedo pants but my mom made me a glove <laughs> as long as i put that glove on with whatever outfit i had on it was MJ time. So, yeah, that was my thing right there. How'd you end up with the name Titty Baby? And why is the guy who first called you that <laughs> such an important person in your life? 
Oh, man, that's my stepdad. During a time that I really needed him, my teenage years, he was my father figure. And when my mom married Fred, that was such a great moment in my life, man, because he was the guy I needed around me. He was a vet, 20 years in the Army. He loved sports. He talked, can I curse? He talked crap. And one thing he loved to call me was a titter baby. He's from West Virginia, so he's, <laughs> he's a country man. But he used to call me titter baby. Stop being a titter baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, time to break away from the titter baby. <laughs> so uh, that was Fred, man. Fred Harrison. I love that guy. So you uh, gr- uh, graduated from high school in Tacoma, Washington in 1989 and immediately moved to Vegas, where your mom had already relocated to help her mom, who was being treated for breast cancer. Yeah. With high school out of the way, you could finally try to figure out how to become a stand-up comedian, something that you had wanted to do for a long time, as we've already talked about. But your first lesson in performing on stage didn't come at an open mic night in the basement of a pizza place. It happened in a musical theater class at yeah. UNLV. What happened at the end of that semester that gave you the confidence to further pursue stand-up? It was singing. When I sang in front of the class, I remember the teacher. She had no idea I could sing. And she literally looked at me like, wow, have you ever thought of like doing the musicals here? I forget what else she said, but that was the moment that I was like, I got something here. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I was able to get the music teacher to be really interested in me to audition for music theater or whatever it was then I knew I had what it takes to get on stage I wish I remembered her name man. she was so nice by the way you were at UNLV uh, I want to say in the late 80s or early 90s were you there during the Larry Johnson era hell yeah I was oh man how crazy were yeah, those games I went games? to school during that time I was at UNLV so you got to sit in the student section for those games for those record breaking no teams. I never went to one game you couldn't get tickets oh man you could not get tickets and my sister was I mean, my sister my cousin was a cheerleader oh wow she was she was a running rebel cheerleader and her husband to this day he was the shark. Remember the shark? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was the shark mascot. He was the one inside the costume. So, yeah, but those tickets, you couldn't get tickets to that. Mm-mm. Even as a student? Uh, no. Are yeah, you kidding me? That's a shame. It, there was no professional teams in Vegas at that time. It was the only team. Well. <laughs> and, uh, and you couldn't bet on the Rebels either. They weren't officially professionals, but I'm guessing that uh, there were some bucks maybe paid under the table for that squad. Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm still convinced <laughs> Larry Johnson was at least 35 when he was playing. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma, Ma, man, he's, he was, he he's was a legend. So I'm from Dallas, so and uh, they still talk about him in the DFW area all these years later. He was a legend. He was beautiful to watch, man. So you're obviously one of the most popular stand-ups around right now. When I picture the first time somebody like you ever goes up, it involves you probably crushing it and never really looking back, and everybody goes through their trials and tribulations. But did you own the room that very first time you performed stand-up at the comedy stop for their something they called the biggest fool yeah complete bomb man <laughs> that was the worst bomb of my life dude <laughs> yeah it should have made me quit and i don't know why i did it it should have made me quit i should have quit thank god i did it man i love stand-up so much and I, and I just knew that that's what i had to do and i remember hearing in an interview i think eddie murphy or somebody i think it was eddie murphy that said he bombed like the first 10 times till he got his first laugh I knew after that bomb, I was like, I got nine more, <laughs> nine more bombs and I'm quitting. So <laughs> I think I was on bomb nine when I got my first clap or something. So I, was, I knew I was on the right track. It's like the stand up three strike rule, I guess, huh? Yes. 
So uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit. You do eventually get something going good in Vegas. And uh, you honestly, you get your own show that is sponsored. It's bringing you some money each and every week. But you realize that ultimately, in order to make it, you do have to move out to L.A. And you do that at the age of 30. So you spend a year or so toiling living off the life savings that you had uh, from Vegas and also some of the successes of Vegas. And although you'd made some good connections and made some bucks along the way, helping to open for bigger comedians, you felt stuck, Joe. So who is Corey Holcomb and how did he help you break through to that next level as a stand-up? Corey Holcomb was just a, he was a seasoned comic. He was already in at the improv as a headliner, you know, and he was getting, he had a lot of heat. He still does. He's amazing. You know, he's my friend. I love him. And I will always remember those guys that picked me up. You know what I mean? That offered a hand. And he didn't have to do it, man. You know what I mean? He didn't have to take me on the road. He didn't have to have me open for him. You know, that's one thing I like to tell these kids that are coming up now. It's like when a headliner is taking you on the road, they don't have to do that. So respect that and cherish it and also remind them how appreciative you are (laughs) to this day. I tell all the guys that took me on the road, I tell them to this day, thank you so much. Always, 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 always. I always make sure to tell everybody who it was that took me up. And that's why when I wrote about him in this book, it felt so good because man, it was during a time where I was working at Nordstrom Rack and no one was looking at me. And Corey was that one guy that took me out there on the road. And he was the one that told me that I need to start writing about myself. You know what I mean? So I I love that about him. How is your friendship with Tiffany Haddish? Uh, Another great example of comedians looking out for each other long before any of you are these highly successful household names. Uh, Tiffany's just amazing, man. And what you see right now is how she was back then when she was broke, living in a car, basically. It's just amazing. Like everything that's happening for Tiffany right now, she deserves And she also deserves more because if you would have seen her grind in the earlier days, there was no way anyone would have made it. Not with the obstacles she had. And that just shows that hard work and passion and love always wins. And she's a perfect example of that, man. She's amazing. So yeah, coming up with her was some of my best times, man. I used to bring my kid to the Laugh Factory. I used to bring little Joe. And when I go (laughs) up on stage, Tiffany would watch him while I'm on stage. She watched uh, my son. So that's how far back we go. That's some dedication right there. And you end up breaking through, I guess, uh, making it to another level as a stand-up comedian thanks to the Just for Laughs Festival in 2005 that leads to you getting your first appearance on The Tonight Show. Prior to that, though, even though you kept receiving these motivating factors to keep getting you going— Did the thought of quitting ever cross your mind? Because obviously it is a lot of hard work. You talk in the book about how you're working all these different day jobs. You're slinging shoes at Nordstrom Rack. I mean, did you ever consider just hanging it up? Because at this point, I believe you did have uh, little Joe. So there's that extra mouth to feed and also baby mama as well. I mean, was it ever hard? And if so, what kept you going? I wanted to quit so bad. You know, it's one thing to be broke and funny on the road. You know what I mean? Or not even on the road, just doing $50 gig here, $25 gig there, and whatever it was that I could just like, oh, I can get some beer and some hot dogs. Like, whatever. (laughs) I'm single. I'm good. You know what I mean? (laughs) When you have a kid, no. It's not hot dogs and beer anymore. It's diapers and medication (laughs) and uh, health insurance. So, yeah, there were times where I was just like, okay, it's not going to happen. I'm 15, 16 years in. No one's even looking at me. 
maybe I should get a job like my mom said, work at a bank, get some health insurance, whatever it was. But yeah, I wanted to quit, man. There were times where I just like I was done, but thank God I did it, man. I knew it was going to happen. So I just kept my head down and kept going for it. Joe Torrey is another one of those legendary stand-up comedians whose advice helped you to evolve as a stand-up. What did he tell you? Wow, man. Thank you. This is so cool you're saying these things to me. Those little uh, Easter eggs that these two comics gave me. I remember when Corey Holcomb goes, I don't know who you are. When I got off stage, he goes, I don't know who you are. I know you're funny, but I don't know who you are. <laughs> you, know, you might want to write some jokes and tell me who you are and where you're from and what does your family do. Tell me about yourself. I went home and wrote all night that night because of Corey. And then Joe Torrey, when I was doing a big show with him at the comedy store, Fat Tuesdays, I crushed in front of him, man. And the first thing he said to me was like, yo, man, it's nice to get all those big applause breaks and people clapping and laughing really hard at every joke, but uh, don't be scared of silence. Because when you got them silent, that means they're listening and you're really telling them something. And I didn't know what that meant at first. At first, I thought he was just mad that I got a lot of laughs. And then later on in my career, I was like, oh, I get exactly what he's talking about. And I'm glad he gave it that little Easter egg because that's what it's all about, man. Being able to have complete control of the room and having everybody just 100% dialed in and listening and consuming every thought that you have and taking it in. So... Yeah, that silence is just as good as an applause break. Because that means they're not distracted by drinks or cell phones or food or anything else. They're literally on the edges of their seats waiting for what you're going to say next. And I'm guessing that that's led to some of the biggest laughs in your career, too. Oh, 100%. Like, I mean, you can watch it now and you'll see me with the storytelling. You know, there's those buildups and those actions that I'm doing. And whereas back in the day, if you would have seen me 15 years ago, it was... It was rapid fire. You know what I mean? It was like set up punchline, set up punchline. It's like, you know, but I never let anything breathe. And that was Joe Torrey is the one that was like, let it breathe, man. Enjoy it. Enjoy the process and take them for a ride. So, yeah, man, I appreciate that. Well, a part of finding your own voice is also finding your own pace, but it's also a willingness to bet on yourself at times, Joe. And you did that several times in your career. You turned down some opportunities like with the Kims of comedy, becoming one of the comedians on that, and then passing on becoming Chelsea Handler's sidekick on the wildly popular Chelsea Lately Show, a program that you were later a regular guest on. Is there an opportunity that you passed up professionally that you still regret to this day? Nope. I feel like every opportunity that I passed on, I knew. I, I was so driven, man. When I passed on the Kims of Comedy, which was a theme show of all Asian comics, and it was going to, you know, they shot it, and it was going to air on Comedy Central. And it would have been a breakout for all those guys that were on it. And it was. And it was a great opportunity. You know what I mean? The reason why I didn't want to take it is because I didn't want to have a, a theme for my reason to be on Comedy Central. I felt that I deserved my hour special just like anybody else. And I didn't need to be pigeonholed or in a group to get on. I felt like, hey, I have an hour, so I'll wait. I'll wait. And I'm glad I did. And I think a lot of people should do that. You know, If you really believe in something that you think you deserve and, and you feel it in your heart, then wait and pursue it and work hard for it because you'll get it. Passion wins every time, man. So, yeah, I'm glad I, I turned it down. And 
I mean, look where we're at now. So. Well, I feel like one of the qualities that has allowed you to become so successful is to have enough self-awareness to understand when a decision is going to lead to a ceiling for you, to constantly ask yourself, is this a ceiling for me? And another one of those moments where you came around the start of the last decade, I believe, you were re-energized by Comedy Central selling your rights to a special that you had shot for them, but they neglected to Netflix. You gain a whole new audience as a result. And shortly after this, Netflix uh, shifted their overall stand-up strategy towards owning more of the comedy that they offered. You did everything to draw their attention to become a part of that massive massive 2017 slate that they were planning, but to no avail. You could not get the proper attention for them. So eventually you decide to shoot a new special on your own dime that could then be sold to Netflix or whoever wanted to ultimately pony up for it. That is not only an impressively ambitious bet on yourself, but also a really difficult one too. What was the hardest part of making Live from Seattle, which ultimately did become one of Netflix's most popular sets of 2017? Thank you, man. Let me tell you one thing. I didn't want it on any other platform. I say that, but I did it. I wanted Netflix and I only wanted Netflix. The most difficult part about that was them saying no multiple times, but when they got word that I was going to shoot it myself in hopes that they would buy it from me, they made sure to call my manager and my agent and say, Hey, we just want you to know we're really not interested. (laughs) Wow. I don't think I read that in the book. Is that something you left out of the book? I probably left it out, but that is a true story, man. They literally called us moments before we shot it. I think a week before we shot it, they got word that we were shooting it and they just wanted to, they were like, but I understand where they're coming from. It's a huge responsibility. If I'm going to be out there telling everybody I'm shooting this for Netflix, people are going to assume it's for Netflix. And they just wanted to like reassure me like, Hey man, we already said, no, we know you're shooting it. And they also knew that it was a lot of money. So they were like, Hey man, We don't want you to think that there's a chance that it's going to be on here. We're saying no, but good luck and we're proud of you. (laughs) But I I didn't care. I was so driven. I knew if they saw this hour and if I shot it the way it's supposed to look, like if I made it look like something that Netflix would shoot and if they see how funny I was and how good that hour was, that I knew it was going to get bought. I knew they were going to buy it once they looked at it. So I bet on myself. I didn't care. And then not only that, man, I was so used to like, selling DVDs by myself. You know what I mean? I was burning DVDs and selling them after shows. So I knew I was going to make that money back. It was probably going to take me 10 years, whatever, but I was going to make that money back or at least put it on YouTube and it would have blown up on YouTube, whatever the case may be. But I didn't care. I was going to make that hour and in my head, Netflix was going to buy it. And shoot, nine months later, they bought it from me. So That was cool. Sure fucking did. (laughs) As someone who has loved comedy for a long time, I've never cared much for Andy Dick. And after reading about him in your book, none of my feelings have changed, Joe. How'd Andy cause a scene when you and your good friend John Lovitz, a.k.a. the greatest comedic devil of all time, were having a meal at a restaurant that Lovitz had an ownership stake in? John Lovitz is another guy that just took me under his wing, man. It was crazy. I was working at Nordstrack still. And uh, he saw my sets. And uh, I get a call from my manager at the time, Jamie Masada. He owned the Laugh Factory. And he's just like, hey, buddy, John Lovitz asked for your phone number. He wants to uh, call you real quick. I'm like, what? The guy I impersonated in high school? The guy that I used to go, get to know me. The guy that I used to do, uh, yeah, that's the ticket. 
Uh, <laughs> that guy? Are you serious? I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? Like, that guy is going to call me. Hang up the phone, and five minutes later, it's John Lovitz. Hi, it's John Lovitz. I think you're hysterical. <laughs> I'm going on the road, and I want you to open for me. And uh, that was our relationship for two years. He took me on the road. I opened for him everywhere. He's the first one to take me to Hawaii. I opened up for him there. And and uh, I had a lot of love for that guy, man. I still do. He's, he's great. He's beautiful. We just went to dinner not too long ago. And uh, yeah, that was one of the most craziest things I've ever witnessed was uh, <laughs> Andy Dick, so drunk, gets into a huge fight with John. You want to hear how crazy the whole night was? Nick Lachey was at the door. He walks out. <laughs> with Jessica, right? <laughs> and then we get sat down across from Jose Canseco. By the way, John Lovitz owns like a percentage of this hotel. So he owns like 10% of this hotel. It, like all this is like weird for me because I still work at Nordstrom Rack. You know what I mean? I was just putting shoes on somebody. And here I am with John Lovitz and, you know, I'm saying hi to Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson. And next thing you know, I'm sitting down in, in his restaurant and sitting across from us is Jose Canseco. And he's all over the news because he did all this you know, the whole steroids thing. So like we're saying hi to him and Jose's talking to John and next, you know, Jose buys us two apple martinis, which was weird. Cause you know, they were green apple martinis. So all I'm thinking about is the A's, the Oakland A's. <laughs> I'm getting it from the Oakland A and, and now we don't drink John and I don't drink. So it's just sitting on the edge of the table. And then here comes drunk Andy Dick. I'm assuming allegedly drunk. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a safe assumption at this point. Yeah. 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 Whatever. <laughs> And here he is, and him and John just get into this huge fight, and then see Andy just take both our apple martinis and drinking them right in front of us, and then seeing John just kicking him out. Get out of here! Get out of here, Andy! <laughs> you disgust me! It was one of the greatest fights I've ever seen. Oh, man. I wanted to uh, end today's conversation by asking uh, one more question about each of your parents. I'm going to start with your dad on this one because uh, there were some redemptive moments for him in your adulthood, but perhaps none more so than the relationship that he has with your brother, Robert. Why will you uh, have this eternal love for your dad going forward, regardless of whatever happened during your childhood, because of your brother, Robert? Look, my dad, you know, it sucks, man, but my dad wasn't a bad guy. He, he was divorce, family. And it was the times. And I understand. I told my dad I understand. You know what I mean? He wasn't in my life at that time. And I had a lot of resentment towards him. I've told him this before to his face. But when I went to go visit my brother, which was far in between, I went to see my brother far in between. And when I opened up the sign-in sheet and saw that my dad is literally 95% of everyone that's signing in to visit my brother, and he didn't tell any of us. He didn't tell my mom. He didn't tell my sisters. He didn't tell me. This is just something my dad did as a dad. And mind you, this isn't even my dad's son. Mm -hmm. This is not his biological son. This is his adopted son. This is my mom's son that my dad adopted. Like he could have easily just walked away and just wiped his hands clean. And he did it. And I respect my dad and love my dad. And I will always be grateful for seeing that the love that he gave my brother, Robert, and he continues to give my brother, Robert. So that's the beautiful thing. That is beautiful. And uh, it really did bring tears to my eyes when I read it in the book. And finally, Joe, what does your mom mean to you? Oh, she's amazing. 
it's hard to explain how hard it is for an immigrant to come to the States and raise a family, but it's even harder to explain how hard it is to come here during the 60s and the 70s. <laughs> I mean, we can never identify with those times and being a part of something very new, which was mixed families, mixed race kids, and dealing with the times that we were going through back then. Like, it, I can't explain it. So just seeing my mom prevail and doing what she did, it's pretty amazing. And like I said earlier, this talent that I got and this drive that I have, it's definitely my mom's. Hmm. Joe, thank you so much for the time today. This was awesome. The book was even better, if people can believe that. And say they should uh, go out and buy it now. It's uh, well worth the price of admission. Thank you so much, man, and take care of things. Take care, Trey. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our interviews and to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.